The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. It's amazing, isn't it, the difference like one that one conversation can make? Uh, Megan and I, we were just talking about this last night, or uh, Megan was, um, we got married in 1999. And so uh, this year is a big anniversary for us. It's our 15-year anniversary. It's pretty cool. Um, so we got married young. Uh, I'm 36, so you can count back to how old I was. I couldn't even rent a car when we got married. Um, but we had been, we'd been dating before that for... Uh, almost five years. We were high school sweethearts. I met. I remember Megan uh, when she when she walked into uh, the youth group. That's where I met her at youth group at a church. We we're upstairs at a, a church in Conway, and I remember when this girl walks in. This petite, pretty, uh, exotic. You know, I'm in Conway, but you know, so you just, she was exotic. This exotic Asian girl walks in, and she had she was petite, and she had long hair like down to here and she she came in and you, you see how what size she is and she came in carrying a giant bible it was like one of those old school king james bibles you know what, what i'm talking about and not just old school king james with the giant print king james bible and it had the, like the gold like kind of you know embossed thing on the front and it had her name megan morgan on the front i remember seeing that i remember thinking that's a cool chick, you know, because I, I love Jesus. I was a teenager, and so they're not just growing on trees, and I see this pretty girl walk in, and I said, that's a girl I'd like to know, and we just kind of were friends for a while, and then I guess somewhere in our senior year or so, we kind of started talking daily. I don't know what we were doing, but we were, there was something going on there, and so we dated for uh, just about five years, and uh, People are always asking this, like, when are you guys going to get married? When are you guys going to get married? When are you guys going to get married? You know, you, you know if you ever dated somebody, that's, that's the question everybody's going to ask you. And we always laughed it off and just said, you know, one day, one day, one day we'll do this. And, you know, uh, but, you know, at the right time. And I remember one day uh, we had the conversation. Not Megan and I, but my mentor. We were coming back from lunch one day, I remember, uh, the moments we were driving down Elm Street in Conway, and I remember he asked me, "So what about you and Megan?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, it's cool." And he's like, "No, no, like, do you think you're going to marry her?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I think we'll get married." And he said, "Well, when?" And I said, "Uh, I guess when the time is right." I always thought it would be, and he said, "Well." When is the time going to be right? And I didn't have an answer to that one. And it's kind of like in that moment, I kind of knew like things might have turned a corner here that I didn't expect to turn on this Friday afternoon after lunch. I remember that night I saw Megan. And we were sitting, because I'm a romantic, at the Huddle House uh, near, near Coastal. And, uh, and we're, we're having some food, I don't remember what it was, and uh, their version of Scattered, Smothered, Covered, and um, I said, hey, <laughs> you'll never believe what Craig asked me today, <laughs> and she said, what, and I said, he asked me, when are we going to get married, because <laughs> we always laughed about it every time somebody would ask us, and for some reason, she didn't laugh, <laughs> and I really knew at that moment something had changed. And I knew at that moment, before we had any further conversation, I knew my future was gonna be going in a different direction very soon than I had anticipated it going just 12 hours before. One conversation can change everything. I remember as well, maybe not quite as momentous, but a big deal for me, and I've told you guys before, you know, so fast forward, Meg and I get, we, we get married six months later. Uh, we're young and dumb, have no idea what's going on. Uh, we are married for about eight years. Uh, we decided in that time that, uh, you know, that we wanted her to be able to stay home whenever she got married, whenever we, she had kids, she was already married. And, uh, and we're trying to figure out how, was that, how we're going to make that work. And so I ended up starting my own business and, 
Uh, I'm going to do it again because I forgot again. <laughs> I stole Dale's water. Um, uh, but I, re- I remember um, uh, we, started the, we started the business. We have a kid. We have Sophia. And I'm home one day, and the, the business is going well. We're members at a church in the area down in Surfside, Surfside Prez. And life is going pretty, pretty smooth. And... But I remember sitting there at the computer, and I was doing some, some work, some paperwork, which I'm not very good at, so it takes me a long time to do. You know, the adding and subtracting kind of thing is kind of above my pay scale, but I was trying to do it, and uh, because I don't have people to do it, I had to do it myself, because it was a small business. And I was doing the deal, and I was listening to some, some teaching in the background on the, on the same time, and I remember this thought came to my head. His thought was, you know, there's nothing in the world I would rather do with my life. And I'm thinking, as I'm, think, as I'm thinking this, I'm saying in, in comparison to what I'm doing right now, there's nothing I'd rather do with my life than to preach the gospel and be a part of helping to lead a team of people on mission in the Myrtle Beach area. And I remember that thought, like, captured me in the moment. And as you guys know, I'm somewhat of a crier, and uh, it hit, hit me in the moment, and I just started bawling. It was kind of the embarrassing bawling, not like just like crying, but like the embarrassing, like, <gasps> like, you know, but, but when you're trying to, like, people are still in the house, Megan, I think, and Sophia are somewhere in the house on the other side, and so I don't want them to know what's going on because I'm embarrassed, and so I'm like trying to keep it quiet. Like, <gasps> it's kind of like the way I was. I, I went to, with a buddy, to see Patch Adams. Anybody remember Patch Adams? with a buddy, just me and a buddy to see Patch Adams, and we're sitting, you know, one seat from each other, because that's what you do, apparently, in, the, in this theater when you go with another guy, and, and, uh, and, and we sit there, and he's one seat away, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there watching Patch Adams, and I remember at some point, I don't remember what he did, maybe he was when he put the, the, the nose on, and he's in there with the kids, and they're sick, and they start laughing, and I, I just started crying in the, in the theater, and I, but I didn't want my buddy to, to know what's going on, so I'm like, just sitting there like this, and then my body starts shaking like this, and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> and then holding it down, and that's kind of what was happening in that, my office that morning, that afternoon. Uh, whenever that thought came to my head, I was nothing I'd rather do with my life than to preach the gospel and to help lead a team of people on mission. I remember I went to Megan in the bedroom later on, like a, an hour or two later, when I composed myself and my eyes weren't puffy anymore. And I went to her and I said, Hey, um, this just happened. I just had this thought. I don't know what you think about this. And I told her, and she had this panic look across her face at first, and she said, what does that mean? And I said, I have no idea what that means. And then she calmed down. She said, I think you're probably right. I think that's what we should do. We didn't know what that meant. This meant we started a period of time of just talking and thinking and praying and exploring what the next step would be. That's where this comes from, that we're starting here with Doxa. One conversation can change your life. One conversation, this, this, in this case, it was a conversation with God that I didn't even realize was going on. I was just adding and subtracting and making sure I could pay myself and pay my employees at the time and making sure I had plus in the bank account and I wasn't all messing up any worse than I normally do. But God, I don't usually say, God spoke to me in that moment and he captured my heart with a dream something that I knew at that moment that I had to do with my life. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what we would have to do. We explored moving away, going back to school, quitting the business, selling the house. Like, what is this gonna look like? And we came to a point where we said, God, whatever you want us to do, we're gonna do it because we have to do this. We don't know how to get there. We're not qualified. We're not capable. We're not able. We don't have money. I don't have the training. We don't have the ability to get there. But God, I cannot not do this anymore. This has become something more than just an idea, it's become a burden that's captured my heart. And really, we all really want to make a difference. None of us, when we're kids or when you're waking up in the morning, do you say, you know what I would really like to do with my life? I would really like to waste my life on frivolous things and get to the end of my life and just have done nothing with my life and have nothing to show for it and die and pass on my debt or my lack of debt to my kids and move on. That's what I would like to do with my life. None of us dream about that. 
All of us, when we think about what we want our future to be like, whether we're kids or today as adults, we dream about making a difference. We dream about making a mark. We dream, we dream about like waking up in the morning with purpose and with drive to, to, to do things that make the world better, to make, the, make a difference, to, 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 to work for something larger than ourselves. If you're a believer, you don't dream about, hey, you know what, I think I'd like to be a casual Christian who just kind of goes to church on Sunday morning or goes occasionally. I go every other week and I call that regularly and, and, and I come in, I sing a song, I listen to a guy talk, I drop some money in a basket or you know, maybe pay online because I'm cool like that and, and I go home and maybe go, I'm a part of a small group or something, but just kind of casual and then like, I like to like give God that part of my life and just that part of my life and the rest of my life, I just like to do whatever I want to do with it. I want to go to work. I want to have a career. I want to have a family. I want to meet somebody. I want to get married. I want to settle down. Whatever it is, I want to see the world. I want to travel. But I like to be casual in my relationship with God. We don't really dream about that if you're a believer. Not a believer. You dream about giving God your whole heart and giving your life to him and for his purpose and his mission. But sometimes there's a disconnect between what we want and what we actually do, right? So, uh, so I, um, so so one example. So, so I, uh, when I got married to Megan, back to the story, uh, I weighed 145 pounds. I was a scrawny, skinny, gangly-looking kind of guy. I have no idea why. She was way above my league. In fact, that's why I locked her in early, before she figured out <laughs> she could do something better than that. I locked her in before she, was, she, didn't, she had no idea. <laughs> so I, You're interested? Let's close the deal right now. And... I locked her in, and I was 145, and so I kind of always thought of myself, I could never gain weight before that, before we got married. I could never, ever gain weight. And uh, I always kind of thought of myself as a skinny guy, because I always had been skinny. But something happened when Megan got pregnant with Sophia. Well, I, probably a little bit before that, I'd started, because I started a business, and I was just kind of real busy, and I wasn't working out anymore, and I was just sitting at my desk all the time. And then Megan had Sophia, and she gained pregnancy weight, which is reasonable because she had a baby in her belly, but I did the same thing, and I don't really have any excuse. I don't know how that worked, but I did. And so I kept thinking about myself as this skinny guy, but my, the way I looked in the mirror when I got out of the shower, because the only time that I wanted to look in the mirror, I didn't even want to, you know, you, you know, you're like, like, you get out of the shower, you don't want to look in the mirror because you don't really want to see what's looking back at you, but, because that's when you're like, just like, it's, this is it, man. This is not, no ornamentation around. This is just who I am. And so I've always thought of myself as that kind of guy. But I wasn't that guy anymore. But I was still thinking of myself as that guy. And I was like, like okay, I'm going to go back to the gym next week. Or I'm going to start eating better next week. But I didn't really catch myself until, like, over some time, like, so, like I started seeing myself in some pictures. And then Sophia uh, started making comments <laughs> about dad's big belly. And I realized, you know what? I, you know, nothing about how, but it's just for me, that wasn't who I, I wasn't who I thought I was anymore, but I was still thinking myself in that way. The, my practice and who I thought of myself as didn't match anymore. And I think that's what we do a lot in our Christian lives, isn't it? I come to church and I get all fired up or I go to a conference and I get fired up or I'm in the car and maybe I'm blasting some, some music or I'm praying and I'm in that, whatever that moment for you is that moment of fervency and you think like, yes, I'm gonna read my Bible every day. I'm gonna hit this thing out of the park. I'm gonna share my faith. I'm gonna give myself. I'm gonna volunteer. I'm gonna serve people. I'm gonna love people. Our family, we're gonna do family devotions. And like, you're like, yeah, this is what's gonna happen. You get all excited and just like maybe the same thing that happens when you think Think about, like, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to start actually making my bed in the morning, or whatever the thing is for you that you think I'm going to do, that, so you think what you're going to do, but the practice, there's a disconnect between the way you actually are, and what you think of yourselves as, or what you wish you would be. My goal we're starting today the book, of, the book of Nehemiah. We're gonna be in this book 13 weeks through the end of July. My goal for this book, just to let you guys know, 
is that your life and my life would be wrecked by this book. Because this book is a story about a man whose life was wrecked by one conversation that he had. Life was going very good for Nehemiah until he has this one conversation and it totally changed the course of his life. He was blown up. He got, I heard a guy describe it as he got a splinter in his, in his mind that he could not get out. It was just in there working, just gnawing at him. He, it, so the, the, the call to action moved from something like, like it did for Megan and I to starting the church. It moved from something like, hey, that would be cool or that would be a good idea to this is something I have to do or I'll die. The story of Nehemiah is a story about one part of a long history of people being wrecked by the difference between what God has called us to be like and the way things are today. And that gap, that difference between what we are supposed to be like, what God has called us to be like, and what is actually going on in my life and in the world today, that gap wrecks me and it changes my life as a call to action. I can't not give myself, but I cannot help but to give myself to that cause. So to catch you up, just kind of set the table before we look at the first, we're just going to be in the first, <laughs> don't be scared, we're going to be just in the first uh, three and a half verses of Nehemiah today. And then we're going to inch along here at the beginning, and then we'll pick up speed at the end. So don't be concerned, there is a plan going on. But so the, the background of the book of Nehemiah, uh, Charles, who I, I love, and my buddy, he, he called Nehemiah, he's been studying it with me. And Josh, uh, before we get into it, uh, he called Nehemiah like it's like a deep cut on the record. You know, it's, it's not it's, it's not something that you listen to like you just like pull on. But you know, if you're the needle ever goes across that, uh, that's old school. But if you if you ever ha- happen to press the button to that track and you hear it, or you leave it on like your iP- your iPod on shuffle and it comes to that track, you're like, oh, that's really good. That's kind of what Nehemiah is. It's not like everyday reading for most of us, but it's a really cool story. So here's here's a kind of background to get before we get to Nehemiah, so you'll know what's going on. Uh, so in the in the beginning of the nation of Israel, God called a man named Abram. In fact, God called a man whenever he calls you. He so changes your identity that in the Old Testament, he would even, in some in the New Testament, he would change your name. And so his name was Abram, and God called him. He said, you're going to be actually called Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make of you a great nation, and I'm going to make a promise with you. Your nation is going to, your people, your family, your, the nation is going to come from you. It's going to prosper. It's going to be great. You're going to be my special, my chosen people. Out of all the rest of the people, you're going to be my special special and chosen people. I've chosen you, not because you're amazing, not because you're great, just like he's chosen you if you're a believer in Christ today, or maybe you're not. He, he, if he has chosen you, he's chosen you not because you had something going for you, because you're great, because you're awesome, because you're talented and gifted and good looking, and you look nice in the mirror when you get out of the shower. He's called you because he has simply chosen to put his favor and his grace upon you, regardless of what you have going on. He said that to Abram. I've called you to be mine. I'm going to make your people, your nation, a great nation. And I'm going to bless them. And out of your nation, I'm going to bless all the people around them. And so Abraham, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. That's his kids. And then Jacob has 12 kids. And, that's the, and Jacob also had another name, which gets confusing. But Jacob's other name was Israel. And that's where we get the nation of Israel from. It's the grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12, Okay. And then 12, that's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jacob has the 12. They start to flourish. They become rich. They have a lot of livestock, a lot of people going on. And then, as you may know the story, uh, there's a Joseph has a dream. He's sold off into slavery by his brothers. Hey, uh, me and my sisters got in some fights, but, you know, we were never selling each other into slavery. That's some, that's some messed up things in the Bible, by the way. Like, if you think of the Bible as like a nice, cool story of nice moral stories, like you, you picture like Noah and the ark and like your, your kid's bedroom, like it's nice and neat. Like think about that. The, the ark was nasty. And there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the Old Testament, like real life stuff going on back there in the Old Testament that you and I can relate to. You have a dysfunctional family? Well, one of the other 
nations of Israel, what would become the other tribes of Israel, they sold one of the sons off into slavery. He goes into Egypt. He becomes like really powerful in Egypt. You've seen the cartoon. And then and then they, they all end up coming to Egypt during the middle of a famine, and they stay there for uh, while the famine's going on and they're taken care of. And while they're in the, the nation of Egypt, which at the time is the power on the stage at the time, while they're in the nation of, of, of Egypt, they flourish. Uh, it, they just like, they just start having babies, and they're strong, and like, they start to flourish. And all of a sudden, what was just like 12 guys and their families all of a sudden becomes like a mini nation inside this nation of Egypt. And so uh, Pharaoh gets jealous. He's, he's concerned about what's going to happen, and so he puts them to slave, slave labor, helps them build up all his like pyramids and things that you've seen the movie. And then they leave it, they leave Israel because Moses comes on the scene. The big, he's a big deal in, in uh, the story of Israel. He comes on the scene. He says, let my people go, has the staff and it turns into the snake and there's fire and hail and you know, you know the whole deal, right? You've seen the movie and, he, and they, he leads them out of Egypt. And so then they go through the, you know, the sea opens and he walks through the sea and comes down and they get to the other side and then God says, all right, I'm gonna make a covenant with you. They're by this mountain called Mount Sinai. He says, I'm gonna make this covenant with you. You are my people. I delivered you out of Egypt and because of that, you're gonna be my people. Well, here's the deal. You have to serve me only. Worship me only. Because I'm the one and only true God, and I've chosen to show myself my glory to the peoples of the, of the earth. Everybody around you are going to see how awesome and amazing I am because of the way that you're living life in the light of who I am. And so that's why this is very important. And he gives them the 12 commandments, and you've seen Moses comes down, and he gets angry because they've already forgotten. Which, by the way, you know, if, if you like ever like have a tough week and you like are hard on yourself because, hey man, I totally forgot God. I didn't do my quiet time. I didn't read this week. Like the nation, the people of Israel, they just were like, they walked through, they walked through an ocean. They walked through the sea on the other side, get on the other side. Moses goes up on the mountain for a few days and they're already like building a calf out of gold and worshiping the calf. Like, so they forgot really fast. If you forgot really fast, you're a long line of forgetters. So he comes down, he has the tablets, he gives the commands, love me, serve me, and follow me only. And if you do, this is what God says, if you do, when I take you to this land that I'm leading you to, out of the land of Egypt, to this land, he says, it's gonna be flowing with milk and honey. I will bless you. And I'll pour my blessings out upon you. And everybody around you will be able to look and see that I am the one and only true God the way that I love you and bless you and I'm gracious to you. But if you forget me, if you decide to run after vain idols, gods that are not gods, then here's what's gonna happen. It's not gonna go well with you. And in fact, if you continue down that path, and in fact, it's very interesting. He tells Moses at the, at the end when Moses is getting ready to die, he says, these people will forget me. They will leave me. God calls them to be his people whenever he knows they're gonna forget him and leave him. But he says, if you do and when you do, the land will no longer be flowing with milk and honey. It's gonna go poorly with you. And not only that, but the special land that I've led you out of the land of Egypt here to the special land in order to showcase my glory and my beauty in your midst. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna scatter you to the ends of the earth. And so you fast forward, like for a while, they, they, they go into the promised land, they have, uh, they, they come into the land, flow with milk and honey, they conquer the peoples. Now, they don't really do it all the way God told them to do. And for a while, Israel is governed by what's called a theocracy. Anybody know what a theocracy is? It's when God is in control. There's no king, there's no president. God is in control. He is ruling the nation himself. And the people don't really like that because they're looking like down the street and they say, hey, look at that king. Like he's, like he's big, he's brawny, he's strong. He's, he's got a, like a, a gold throne. He's got an awesome palace. We don't have any of those things. We want that. And God says, are you sure you want that? They said, yes, we want that. And he says, now, if you do this, it's not gonna be great for you because the king's gonna be in, in charge. He's gonna take all the best of your land and he's gonna tax you and he's gonna do all this stuff. They said, no, we want that because they look at the other nations and like, we're just ruled by God, but he's invisible and we can't see him, but we can see that guy. So we want kings. So God says, all right, I'll give you a king. So he sets Saul up in charge of the nation of Israel. And Saul was big and tall. He, he stood 
head and shoulders. It would be like, it'd be like if it was a nation of Dales and then me. He, had, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was big time. He was strong. He had broad shoulders. He was good looking. He had everything going for him. I'm not saying that in connection with Dale. I'm just saying just the height thing is really, um, but we know the truth. No, I'm just saying it's just, just a height thing, not a looks thing at all. <laughs> so Saul is bigger and taller and stronger than everybody else. There's only one problem with Saul. He doesn't really love God. He loves God when it's convenient for him, when it serves his purposes, but he doesn't really love God. And so God gets rid of Saul, and he says, I'm going to bring in, I'm going to show you the king that's after my heart. And this is not the guy that, like, Saul is the one you would pick, right? In a nation that has to, you have to be strong and be able to bear arms and conquer other people and protect your borders. You want somebody who's big and strong. David, he was no slouch. I mean, he killed a lion and killed a bear with his bare hands. This is pretty, pretty awesome. But, but he was like, he was like out in the woods, like watching over like sheep and playing on his harp and singing. Like that's the kind of guy, he's writing poetry out in the back. He's not the kind of guy you would normally pick to be a king, but he had a heart after God. And God tells David, he says, uh, I'm going to, I'm a king, I'm going to have a king on your throne forever. And a king is going to come after you, he's going to be the great king. And he's talking about Jesus. Uh, but Saul has a son, Solomon. I mean, I'm sorry, David has a son, Solomon, who, as you may know, super rich, super wise, and areas of state and country. He builds the, the nation of Israel up. They're a mighty power. They're not threatened by anybody. Are you baiting me? Like, here's a little water for you. So he, he builds the nation up. They're strong and powerful. They have palaces, the whole deal. Uh, only one problem, like his heart wasn't fully God's either. And so uh, he had some, and, and on top of that, he had some stupid kids. And so whenever Solomon dies, his son that comes up to be king after him is not smart at all. He listens to some bad counsel. And the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes, are split into two nations. So you have the northern kingdom, which is tw- 10 tribes. Then you have the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is ch- called Judah. Two tribes, and that's where Jerusalem is down in Judah, which, by the way, Jerusalem was God's, spe- in the midst of his special nation, Jerusalem was his special city. And he said, I'm going, that, this is where my glory is going to be displayed. That's where the temple was built there by Solomon, where that housed God's presence in the midst of his people. It's a very special, special place. So the kingdoms are split, and almost immediately, the, the 10 northern tribes, you guys tracking with me so far? The 10, the 10 northern tribes, they're just, they're, they're out to lunch from the very, very beginning. And it's not long, in fact, it was uh, 722 BC, if you're taking notes and so you can get into history, 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, which by now is the mover and shaker in the world stage, it's the powerful empire at this time, the Assyrian Empire comes down and conquers the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes. And they take them, not only do they conquer them, but you would take them into captivity. That's what they would do at the time. So they would come into your country, and they didn't want to. They would conquer you, and they didn't have like uh, satellite imagery to keep up with what's going on at the time. And so, like, you could be doing secret like plots against the king and the kingdom over here, and nobody would know it because you have a vast empire. And so, what they would do is they would take your best and your brightest out of the empire and bring them to their capital city, so they could keep an eye on you. And they would spoil you. They would surround you by palatial uh, comfort and luxury. And they would like, give you some cush jobs. And so you would get kind of, you would I'd sort of identify with the Assyrian Empire and no longer being, in this case, an Israelite. And they would kind of bring you into their society by doing that. And so they do that. The nation, of, the nation of Judah, by the way, meanwhile, they have things a little more together. If you read the story of their kings, it's sort of like a bad king, good king, bad king, good king, two bad kings, a good king, two, three bad kings, and then a good king. And so they kind of, they kind of like keep, it's maybe, like, maybe like your walk kind of is with, with God, I don't, I don't know, but it's like, hey, I, you know, two bad weeks, one good week, bad week, good week, you know, just like, you know, this kind of back and forth, this kind of way they were all the way through. And then, and then finally, it gets to a point, it just gets worse and worse. And then um, 586 BC, somewhere around there, the Babylonians, who meanwhile, I didn't tell you what's going on over here, 
I'm trying to set the stage for you guys so you can understand what's going on in Nehemiah. So meanwhile, the Assyrian Empire, which was the big daddy at the time, conquered the nation of Israel, if you remember. The Babylonians come in and they conquer Assyria. You guys tracking? So now ba- the Babylonian Empire is the big dog on town. And the Babylonians come down and they lay siege to Jerusalem and they take Jerusalem and the southern kingdom. And they take their best and the brightest. In fact, they, they come through several times. They first take the best and brightest, and they come through and take other people. And so there's almost nobody left in the nation of Judah. Almost nobody left in Jerusalem. God's special people, God's special city, the place that he said, I would show my glory. It'll be a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will bless you in such a way that all the nations around will know that I am God, all of a sudden, Judah is empty, Jerusalem is empty, the, the walls are torn down and the gates are burned, the temple is torn down, it's just a rubble of a city, the place where God said, I would, I would, put, my, I would put my presence in the actual temple, the temple is gone, and the people are taken into captivity because they had refused after generation, after generation, after generation to follow him and to love him and to worship him. And then in 540 BC, so the uh, Jerusalem is conquered in 586, 540 BC, the Persians overtake the Babylonian empire. And Cyrus, who was a great king at the time, he was a really fascinating figure in a lot of ways. Some people think that he was kind of the first humanitarian the first guy that had an idea of human rights, because there's a, a, it's a cylinder they found where it talks about the rights of people, and we don't, anyway, it, it, he's, he's a pretty big deal. He didn't come along, he didn't come along the Persians and, and Cyrus, uh, he didn't come along and take out your best and brightest and leave your, your city in ruins. He, he would empower you in your city and he, was built, he built devotion by empowering you in your local city and your local worship. And so what he started doing whenever he came to power over the Babylonian Empire is he told not just the Israelites and the, um, the people of Israel, he told all kinds of nations, here, go back to your nation, build your temple, worship your God, and serve me, and rebuild your city, and I'll help you do it. And he built great um, loyalty to himself by doing that. You see how that would work? And so this, this guy named Zerubbabel, this book, by the way, is a nightmare if you're trying to speak to people because Zerubbabel is about the easiest name I'm going to get for the rest of the study. There, there are some tough ones in here. This guy named Zerubbabel, and King Cyrus tells Zerubbabel to go back to uh, Israel, to go, well, actually to go to Jerusalem, and take with him a priest whose name was Jeshua and rebuild the temple. And that's about 538, 520 BC, somewhere in there. And so Zerubbabel goes down with Jeshua. You guys track it with me? You got all these names? Zerubbabel and Jeshua go down to Jerusalem and they start to build the temple. And they get halfway through, and again, kind of like you and me with a workout routine or a new diet or um, say, I don't know, uh, putting up toilet paper holders in your house. Maybe, this is just totally hypothetical, you get two bathrooms done and the upstairs one, there's no toilet paper holder in there because you got two of them done and you ran out of time and you're gonna get to it. And that's kind of what happened with the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem. The Zerubbabel, Jeshua, his people, they come down. They have money, they have resources to build the temple. They get the temple half finished and they just kind of stop. The people lose interest. It's too hard. It's hot. You know, I don't know what's going on. They're sweating. I don't want to do this anymore. It's time for me to, you know, go, I don't know, plant my grain. I don't know. I have stuff going on to kind of leave it halfway. And these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, come along and they'd say to the people, hey, Haggai says, hey, why are you living in your nice houses when this the temple of the Lord is sitting around half finished. And so they call the people to action. The people come back and they actually finish the temple. So that's the, there's three returns. We're getting there. We're getting very close to Nehemiah now. There's three, we're th- there's three returns back to the city of Jerusalem. And that's the first return, Zerubbabel and Joshua. 
Then there's another return in 458 BC, and that's when Ezra, who was a scribe, that means he was sort of a sort of our version of a lawyer, uh, 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 the lawyer of the book of God, the lawyer of the law of God, essentially. He is sent by King Darius, who's, I don't even want to give into him, he's the new king in, in uh, Persia. He's sent by Darius to come down to the temple and to tell the people, this is, okay, the temple is built, this is how you should worship God. Because think about it, you have people who have lived in either in Babylonian and now Persian captivity for years and years and years and years and years. Or you have people left in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area without any teachers because they took all the learned men and the, the scribes and, the, and they took everybody out. I was about to say Pharisees, that comes in later. They took everybody up to Babylon. Uh, Babylon. So there's nobody to tell them this is what we should do. This is how we worship God. And so Ezra comes down with the Bible to say, hey guys, this is the way that we should worship God. And he starts to preach. And then we get to the story of Nehemiah, which by the way, a little, another little nugget for you, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, which are right beside each other in the Bible, they were actually one book for a long time. It wasn't until I think Origin came along, and the uh, early church fathers would actually split those books apart. We think they were written by the same guy. Uh, Nehemiah has a lot of first-person stuff in it, but we think maybe he had a journal, and Ezra took his journal and compiled to tell the story. So that'll just give you a little idea what you have going on here. If you have your Bible now, you can turn to the book of Nehemiah. See, that's why we're only doing three and a half verses. So you got to remember, as we're going into these first few verses here, what Jerusalem, what the nation of Israel, what the, particularly Jerusalem in particular, meant to the Israelites, meant to the Jews. It was the place that God promised them is it would be a land flowing with milk and honey. It's the city, he said, I will bless and I will showcase my glory in this place and I will dwell in the temple among my people. And that will be what will set you apart from every other people in the world is that my presence, the one and only true God, dwells in the temple. Which, guys, by the way, is what sets us apart from other religions in the world. There's other religions that have great moral teachings, lead their people to be better people. There's a lot of religions, by the way, that have congregations that are much better people than you that are sitting in this room right now. The difference is that we serve and worship the one and only true God. And that makes all the difference in the world. So Nehemiah, the words, verse, verse one of chapter one, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I told you it was gonna be fun with the names. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now Nehemiah was hanging out in the, in the, uh, with the king's house. We're gonna see that coming up. Nehemiah had somehow, we don't know how it happened, he had worked his way into a very prestigious place. He was a servant to the king, which was actually a, a pretty high honor to have, but not only was he a servant to the king, but he had worked his way up to he was the cupbearer to the king. You guys know what the cupbearer does? What's a cupbearer do, John? Absolutely. So, so you have it's a it is a, that's that's the epitome of a high pressure job. You know, Dale's telling me how important how important he is at his job and how all the stuff that he has going on there. That, that that is an important job, Dale. This job is a high pressure job because if you if you a bad day at the office is that you die because <laughs> they didn't have like assassin like cool assassins and like long distance like laser laser pointers to like laser pointers, laser guidance systems to kill people or to blow things up. Like the way you conquered another nation, you killed the king. And the way you killed the king is you had to get in close to him and you either, either you know, stuck him in the shower, stuck him while he's sleeping, or you poisoned his food. And so if you were Nehemiah, your job was to make sure that doesn't happen, that doesn't get to the king. So you would taste his wine and you would taste his food and then wait X amount of time and then if you don't die, you pass it on to the king. So the king had to trust you because what's, who's the one person in this deal who could double cross the king? The cupbearer, 
Absolutely. In fact, some kings would have multiple cupbearers to make sure one of them is a lion and they're not in cahoots with each other. And so if you have one, you have a cupbearer, you trust this guy that he's not tricking me. He didn't eat out of like the, the wrong mashed potatoes and he's giving me the bad mashed potatoes. And so Nehemiah has worked his way. He's in the king's palace. He's got a good job. He's secure. He has the king's ear. If you're a servant to the king, you might have just been a servant, but compared to the normal peasants, you had life good. You lived in the palace. You had a nice house, probably had a decent income, and you had uh, access to lots of money and power and prestige. Now let's continue. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, that's pro- we think it's probably the 20th year of the reign of now we have Artaxerxes. How do you like that name? Artaxerxes. Probably Artaxerxes the first, but we don't know for certain. Because they were like, hey, this, this name Artaxerxes is so cool, let's pass it on again. Now, in the month, it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year. As I was in Susa, that's the capital city, the citadel, the, the, the capital, of the, the stronghold of the king. That Hanani, one of my brothers, that could have been his actual like, physical brother, or he might just be saying one of the people from Israel, he's saying his brother, we don't know, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Now, already we see a really cool lesson. We see that Nehemiah, that he didn't just see people that came in from Judah and say, hey, how you doing? He asked them a question. He had some concern. He had a heart after God, and he wanted to know, what is going on with my people in Jerusalem? I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, I don't pass by needs so much because I'm actively ignoring people, though sometimes I am, just to be honest with you. Uh, uh, sometimes I pull the, uh, you guys ever the pull in the grocery store that like, I didn't see you down that aisle, and so I'm going down the next aisle, and, but I pretend I didn't see you, and then if we run into each other at the meat department, I'm like, oh, hey, how you doing? And what I'm really thinking in my head is, I couldn't find out a way to avoid you, but I'm going to act like I didn't see you, so it doesn't seem as rude as I actually am. But sometimes I'm not being, I'm not actively ignoring problems around me. It's just I just don't see them. Because sometimes I'm just so wrapped up in myself, I just don't even think to ask or think to ask the question in my own brain. But Nehemiah, we see already, has a heart after God. He loves God and he loves the people of God. And so whenever somebody comes from a faraway land where his people are, where his heart is, maybe Nehemiah, we don't know, he may have never seen, he probably has never seen the city of Jerusalem. But he's heard stories He's read, he's heard about how God said, I will show my favor to you here. My glory, my presence will dwell here. Jerusalem will be a strong place for my people. So when some people come back and they've seen it, he asks them, tell me about what things are like there. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile. That means, we think that probably means the, the people who had already returned. Remember those first two returns, Zerubbabel and Ezra, I didn't tell you. Both times they took a bunch of people and they took a bunch of money down there and, stu- and, and uh, supplies in order to build. The remnant there in, this, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, we don't know how these people said it. That might have been all they said. There might have been a conversation about it. But this is that conversation that changed Nehemiah's life forever. Because something happened to his heart when he heard that report that captured his heart. And probably, I wonder if he knew at that moment, just like I knew at that moment, really, if I really think about it, in the moment when Craig asked me in that different kind of voice, and he had never asked me about Megan before, when he said, when are you going to marry her? And I, probably at that moment, not the huddle house, it was probably at that moment that I knew things were different. And in that moment, when I was sitting at my desk, doing everyday work, and that thought came to my head, this is what I really want to do with my life. 
Really, I knew at that moment, the course of my future is totally changed. Because something had gripped me And something has gripped Nehemiah that we're getting ready to see, has gripped his heart so much that he cannot go back. He can't go back anymore. Something happens whenever something grips your heart, whenever you see something the way God sees it, and you see that gap between what God has called things to be like and the way things are, and you see that gap that breaks your heart, that you know like things taste different. Your home doesn't look the same. That, that, that car that you're looking to buy, like, like I knew like this is probably going to affect my income. I'm going to make less money if I go down this route of helping to plant a church. All of a sudden, having the next car or the next house doesn't seem quite as exciting as it did before because something else has gripped your heart. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. There's a verse in, I don't have it on the screen, I'm just gonna run through it because I know we're, we're pushing time this morning. There's a, there's a couple of verses. There's one in Psalm 44. I don't even have to look, at, look it up, but I want to make sure I get it right. Psalm 44, verse 1. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them, that your people, you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them, your people, you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor with their own arms save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. I wonder if Nehemiah was thinking about that psalm. When they come back and they say, the walls are, the walls are torn down and the gates are burned and, your pe- and God's people lie, are sitting around, are living in shame and in desolation. And Nehemiah remembered, I've heard the stories of, of, of what you've done before, how you conquered nations and by your own power you drove them out. God, in our day, in our time, would you do that? There's a, there's a verse in another, another one of your uh, favorite books, I'm sure, Habakkuk chapter three and verse two. Oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. And of your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, that means in the midst of our years, in the midst of our day, in our time, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever read the book of Acts or the New Testament? Do you ever hear stories of how God has moved in other places and other times? Have your parents or your grandparents heard stories? Have you ever seen old pictures of like people coming to Jesus? Have you ever looked online and seen stories of people across the world and across the nation who hear the word of God and come in mass droves where entire cities are stories in the book? And there's stories in the nation of Wales and how so many people came to know God God in the, right around the turn of the, the last century that the miners couldn't control their mules in the, in the mines anymore because the mules were so used to being commanded by curse words and God totally changed the lives of these hardened miners so they weren't, they're taught differently. The mules didn't even understand the commands anymore. You ever heard stories about God moving in other places and other times? And maybe one day you hear it, maybe this morning, maybe next morning, maybe sometime over the next 13 weeks, you hear the reports and it grips your heart and it tears you out. You see where God has called us to be and you see the state of the world, the state of the church today. You look around the Grand Strand area and you see a, a city, an area littered with churches, but littered with churches where people are worshiping a dead God. Worshiping deadly. You drive down your neighborhoods and through the streets and you see people looking, searching for the endless summer, thinking that money, thinking that a better golf score, thinking that, that uh, a nicer car, thinking that more sun, more time on the beach is the answer for them. But God, God has called them to be his people. Does that ever wreck your heart? So that when you see them and you hear the reports of them, the gap between what God has called them to be and the gap of where they are arrests you and is a burden to you. So that you sit down 
and you weep for days and days and your heart cries out, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, in our day, in our time, make it known. We only get one shot at life. There's no dress rehearsals. We only get one shot at today. You, us here, most of us are, are kind of younger. We only get one shot at being the church. 20, 30, 40 years, and then we move on. We get a small window to be a part of the great story of redemption that God has been writing since before Nehemiah's time, that we're gonna see that Nehemiah got a chance to join in and see God do amazing things. We're gonna see something next week, amazing happens. He stands before the king and he asks him, I need all this stuff, and the king says yes. He goes down, they build the wall. It's gonna be amazing to see what happens. You only get one shot at it. You only get 10, 20, 30, 40 years Think of what age we are here. You don't know what's going to happen. We only get one shot at taking our place in the line of history of God's redemption. And this is our shot. So my prayer for the next 13 weeks is that God would wreck you and that God would break your and my hearts for his glory and his fame and his renown in this area, and to break our hearts for the city that's far from him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.